we always ask if people have seen them live. Um, Henry rarely has, unless it was like between 1996 <laughs> yes. and 2004. 1970. No, no, there's, my, my gigging went into London in a kind of... Oh, that's true. ...when I was living there. So it, it's it's the last 10 years that I've just got this kind of massive... It's like a desert of gigs. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Newnham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome back. You are, as always, listening to I Might Be Wrong with me... As always, is Mr. Henry Salmon. Hello. How are you doing, sir? Very well, thanks. I'm all good. I've just got back from a mountain bike ride with a spaniel, so um, so life is good. And a flat tyre, by the sound of things. Yeah, that happens. We were recording about three hours after we were supposed to. Yeah, blame me. <laughs> and joining us, we have a guest. So, Mr. Patrick Jackson, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, good, thank you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. It's uh, nice to be here. <laughs> well, you say that, but you and I have talked a lot on podcasts in the past because you are the sensiblest voice on the Long Snapper podcast. Yes, most recent um, guestular. <laughs> yes, guestular for those who don't happen to listen to Long Snapper because, you know, these two niches overlapping is probably me and you. You are a guestular, which basically means a guest who got invited on once and then just kept coming back <laughs> because we always like to oh. just grow the crew. So you've done it's guest and regular, is that it? That's it. Yeah, we we love a portmanteau on long snap. Okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you had me. Yeah, confused there. We did briefly suggest guestical, but obviously that got thrown out. <laughs> right. So we had a chat, and you threw up some interesting musical options for us, mostly based around the late nineties and early thousands, but much more obscure than many of the options that. Adam, Mark, etc., have have thrown at us so far. So, who did you decide on in the end in terms of artist and album? So, we're going to be talking about David Ford and his album "Let the Hard Times Roll," which I hadn't heard of either of those things when when you mentioned them. But then you also mentioned Easy World, who I had heard of. So, what's the link there? Okay, so I got introduced to Easy World in my second year of university, so this would be end of 2001, beginning of 2002, and I saw them a lot in my second and third years around kind of York, Leeds, Sheffield sort of areas, and they split up when I was working in Loughborough on my placement year, so I was kind of feeling kind of isolated and having something that was a really big part of my life break up unexpectedly. It hit me harder than it should have at that time, I think. And then, yeah, there was a gap of like 10 years when I didn't follow the exploits of anyone that was going on. And then my parents mentioned seeing David Ford at a folk gig, like festival up in Pocklington, I think it was. And Let the Hard Times Roll was the first album that I heard of his solo work after that kind of long hiatus of uh, not really paying attention to it. And it's good. It's full of tracks that make you feel kind of... he, he varies from angry to sad to hopeful across an album so it's a real mixed bag of uh, of emotions that he throws at you yeah it was a really interesting one for me because i listened to the album first before diving in and i couldn't reconcile the fact that i knew that easy world or i was fairly sure that easy world were a british band 
but this album doesn't sound British. It sounds very folksy, bluesy Americana. Yeah, and that that kind of marries up with all of the artists I've seen him perform with over the years, post Easy World, certainly. If you go back to the very first album he did as a solo album, which is called I Sincerely Apologise for All the Trouble I've Caused, that was 2003, so he must have been kind of writing and recording that about the time Easy World fell apart, and that's very similar to the Easy World kind of sound and very melancholic, apologetic, self-deprecating for the most part. So it's it moved on a lot. There's a big gap between that and the, uh, the, the, the next album in 2007. It's weird that... Because I came across Easy World when it must have been a university and they must have been, for me, they were a one-track wonder. So that You and Me was on a playlist and I kept on listening to it because I really enjoyed it. So when you mentioned David Ford, I was like, oh, I'm going to get some more Easy World type kind of what? It's a, a three-piece kind of power pop. They were quite noisy, I guess, a, a noisy band. And I listened to David Ford stuff and... It's quite different. It's, it's um, and I was thinking, hang on a second. How how have the two? How has he moved from being in a in a guitar band to doing some some very gentle acoustic work? Yeah, he he still breaks out the angry yelling from time to time. So there's a track on Charge <laughs> called Every Time, and the kind of riff of it is Every time I was given a chance to stand on my own two feet, I fell. Is the the repeated kind of chorus lyric, and that just gets more and more intense and angry throughout the song, and it's like. I've done it my way and I've achieved what I want to achieve. And the people who are telling me that, oh, you could have made it really big. It's like, well, I didn't want to make it really big. What I wanted to do was stay true to my music and sell that to the people who wanted to listen to it. So thanks, but that's a a backhanded compliment I don't really need. And he's a fascinating character on that front, isn't he? Because he, we, so Henry and I talked about Amy Mann on last week's podcast and we touched on, or Henry touched on quite heavily the fact that she sort of didn't want to do the traditional do what the record label tells you continue to pop out records sell loads of records become immensely rich and famous thing she instead went actually i want to produce stuff that is meaningful to me and david ford feels very similar he feels like or his work feels like someone who knows their own mind and really wants to pursue that side of things to the point where I, during our research, discovered that he'd written a book called I Choose This, How to Nearly Make It in the Music Industry. And he does have a lot of that self-deprecating, almost apologetic thing about him, but also tinged with this anger at all the things that have not allowed his type of work and his style of approach to be just as successful as a band that just stick with what the record company want them to do. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And it's it's, it's kind of paralleled with a frustration about the way you see society heading in general. So there's a lot of kind of political protest sort of songs mixed in with the, with the general mixture there. There's one called Surfing Guantanamo Bay in there, which is fairly obvious, and other subtler stuff as well. <laughs> his his yeah. latest album is called Animal Spirits, and that's described as... Um, a kind of discussion through his thoughts on macroeconomics, which isn't really a, a yeah, exactly. It's not really <laughs> awesome. a mix you expect with music. So uh, I haven't heard that very much. It'll be interesting to get a bit more into that one. Yeah, not not your classic musical subject matter. I, I have a pocket theory that I've developed in the last couple of days about David Ford and his career, and I think what happened was 
when Easy World were recording, there were so many guitar bands around who were doing that similar kind of thing. And I think he wanted to get noticed and went down the kind of pop kind of noise guitar rock by numbers, tried to follow them when actually what he really wanted to do is record this stuff that he's doing now. And then I think he kind of missed the boat. An artist like Damien Rice, like Ray Lowentan, all those guys got really well known really quickly. And I think he's tried to backpedal and go into the acoustic thing. And I think he's kind of missed the boat. And that's that's my theory. And I think he's kind of ruining that. That's the total pop psychology kind of what <laughs> couple of hours worth of listening to his stuff. But that's where I think his, his career has gone. See, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that in that I think that a lot of what I've listened to so far sounds very authentic. And I do feel like he's an artist that deserves to be better known than he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I just think that there were a lot of male singer-songwriters doing that quiet kind of thing back in that time, like Aqualung as well. Um, he'd do a similar kind of thing, but with a piano. And and I wonder whether there were so many of them that he's kind of, he's just not got caught up in in that. I don't know. There we go. That's That's my... That's my theory. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Pat, do you want to refute that? Tell Henry why it's wrong? Not, not at all. I think the, the Easy World gigs were always an interesting dynamic because you had kind of Joe on bass and backing vocals, Glenn on drums and backing vocals, and then David Ford on lead guitar slash mandolin slash synthesizers slash doing all the talking slash doing all the singing slash everything. And sometimes he was enthusiastic and hyperactive and really engaging with the crowd and some nights he was really dour and I remember they um, played a song called Till the Day um, which is kind of a slow emotional song and it was at Fibbers and it was a warm-up act for someone else and so there was some people paying attention and really getting into it but a lot of people not and he got to the end of the song and just kind of went well, I really hope you enjoyed your conversations during that song. I was like, I'm not saying a good tone for the rest of this gig. Oh, I do, I do love a a sulky artist that's being ignored. It must be so tough, though. If you know, you've you've put all this effort into the into this songwriting and rehearsing and making sure your your levels are right just before the gig, and then you start playing, and all the people that have turned up in the room just want to chat. It's like, come on, I've put all this together for you guys. I absolutely get that, and one of my biggest pet peeves is people talking during gigs. But I also think if you're a warm up act, you have to power through that because this is a potential new audience that you might get on board with your music, even if you only win over. 2% or 5% of that audience, that's still a new bunch of people that could be very loyal to your music. And for me, Easy World and David Ford have both seemed like they aren't well known, but the people that know them love them and they they have that real cult following. And, and his work puts me in mind of uh, Frank Turner, both in style and in lyricism. You know, it's it's that quietly angrily political approach and i'm broad brushing that because obviously they are they are different but there's there's an element of if you can get a few people on board they will become really big fans if you give them attitude and shit they're probably not going to bother listening to any (laughs) of the rest of your gig you know if you're the headline act there's a little bit different you know attitude that you can take there yeah, Dave Grohl could get away with it. I'm not sure David Ford could. 
<laughs> and I've seen I've seen bands like that where they I can't remember who it was, but I saw a band. So myself and Northern Neil, who gets mentions on this podcast, even though he's still yet to make it on, uh, we went to a gig in Notting Hill somewhere. There's um there's a fantastic gig venue that I've totally forgotten the name of. Anyway, we went there for a gig for two bands that we both liked both of those bands or I guess became fans of both of those bands. I knew the headliners before we went. I didn't know White Rabbits who were the undercard before we went and I came out with White Rabbits just having blown me away and I don't remember the name of the other band and that says a lot about how terrible they were (laughs) and how shitty their attitude was because they were doing a London gig and London crowds don't give a shit and blah 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 and all that kind of shit when actually the crowd had been great during White Rabbits because the energy had been there yeah it makes a big difference anyway that's that's my soapbox for for well at least the next five minutes I guess okay Pat question how did you find Easy World in the first place uh, so a friend of mine, in fact, my lab partner called uh, Kevin in second year introduced me and dragged me along to a load of gigs, which was great. He's the sort of guy nice. who'd uh, phone you up to apologise for missing practical work because he'd just woken up in a bush in Leeds. But he was a great guy to uh, <laughs> entertain you with gigs and stuff. I've just realised that the two of you might have stuff in common that I haven't even explained. So, Pat, what was your degree in? Chemistry. Henry, what was your degree in? Oh, chemistry <laughs> it says with <laughs> bombs and drugs what a subject to study <laughs> pat doesn't like bombs so that hasn't left him with just the drugs <laughs> <laughs> but henry you also have a similar lab partner story right oh i've i've got loads um i've i've seen someone's eyebrows removed because they put um god what was it nail varnish remover acetone um they put that on a hot plate which is at 100 degrees and the flashpoint of acetone is like 65 and he was leaning over it watch, trying to watch it bubble and he just went boom and took his eyebrows off um i've seen all sorts good degree though and yeah i hated lab work that's why i ended up in computers <laughs> yeah I, I i became an analyst because all the synthetic stuff was way <laughs> way more complicated than i could deal with i'm more into the numbers but we, we digress I have an easy world question. Um, so when you went to the gig that first time, did you instantly get kind of captured by their music or did you have to see them again or listen to their music on a CD or something to get interested? The first live gig was on a, on a positive enthusiastic day. I think it was the Sheffield Leadmill. And there's a song called Junkies and Whores which is just so emotionally charged and, and powerful. That, that, that grabbed me and drew me in. I wanted more of that. And then, yeah, we saw them in Leeds a couple of times and, uh, yeah, followed them about a bit. It was, it was good. Good times. I love that feeling at a gig when just, just a song just grips you and pulls you in. It's just amazing. Yeah, and when it's like, when it must have been about three, 400 people and it was, it was an attention grabber for everyone there, yeah. It was good. Good day. Nice. So had you done a lot of gig going before this or was this a lab partner who sort of started your love of live music and gigs? It was very fledgling, yeah. This is it. Him, apart from, I think Runrig I saw before that. Apart from that, and that's a very you know different like Proper Scottish folk. folk rock sort of stuff. It's a yeah. It's well, it's yeah, maybe I suppose. But that was kind of three thousand people in Sheffield City Hall. It's not quite the same as a sweaty, sticky lead mill dance floor, yeah. So it's uh, a very <laughs> different atmosphere. That's fair. Oh, I've never really done northern gig venues having spent my entire gigging life around Bristol 
and London, I guess. That's something I've missed out on. I don't, yeah, I'm just trying to think, actually. I don't think I've done a single... I thought, well, London's probably the furthest north I've ever been with gigs. <laughs> that oh. must be it. I've just realised I've never done a gig in northern England. I've done more gigs in the US than I have north of the Watford Gap. Oh, we go. We can educate you a little today, then. <laughs> Are the crowds different? Do you get different crowds in um, up north? I'm not sure I can compare it because, you know, I, I, I saw him in the cockpit which is like a bridge archway that was converted into a pub slash gig venue which has subsequently closed down and that was the that was the pinnacle i think and kind of tinny echoey metal atmosphere but the sound was so big in there but yeah when i've seen him in london it's been solo him and it's been a crowd of 30 40 50 year olds watching not a crowd of 21 year olds so the, the atmosphere is different by default of the people who are there. In fact, they're probably all the people like me who've got nostalgia for... Uh, I met someone else wearing this T-shirt, this uh, the Easy Will T-shirt. So uh, <laughs> had a little nostalgia trip with her. It was good. And and sonically, they're very different artists, I guess. I mean, it, it felt like that even in the Easy Will days. It was him and a couple <laughs> of others. And uh, I don't know how much they contributed creatively off stage like into the making of the songs but certainly during the live performances it wasn't like that and i think he's matured a lot in terms of allowing other people creative input so the the gigs i've seen scala and bush hall were the last two he did a set Mm -hmm. with um there was four musicians there was a guy on drums who also happened to be the tour manager so that's giant Texan singer-songwriter called Jared Dickinson, who's fantastic in his own right. He's about as close to country music as I can tolerate, but, you know, it's it's uh, good vibes. He's got a fantastic voice. He was, like, first support. Second support was a young singer-songwriter called Emily Grove, who was kind of reminiscent of Cranberry's Alanis Morissette sort of stuff. And the way they did that set was she did the first half hour with... Jared and David backing vocals and guitars and stuff. And then Jared did 45 minutes with the same four musicians. And then David did his hour, hour and a half. So it's very much become like a cooperative, collaborative thing. And when you think back to what happened to Easy World and how that all ended, you can see how much he's learned and how much he's grown from that experience, I think. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And and intriguing to see a gig like that because you very rarely see acts sort of cross collaborate you do sometimes see i've seen singers from headline acts come out and play with their you know with the the support acts when they've got to know each other over a tour or something like that you don't very often see that kind of almost blurring the lines as to who's playing when but that that's really cool and bush hall's an amazing venue i love that place yeah, really good, really good. I don't know what's so what's so good about it. It's just a brilliant place. It's it's not a loud venue, so it's not designed to be a rock or a big noise venue. It's very much set up to be. It's very set up for country music and folk music and lighter ac- acoustic style stuff. I'm not even sure they could get a license to have the noise levels crank up beyond a certain level because they're literally adjacent to a bunch of residential 
flats and things like that on so it's if you know shepherd's bush at all well if you're going out west towards ealing along there Mm -hmm. all the way along there it's rows and rows and rows of shops but with flats above them and bush hall is just sort of squeezed in between a few shops along along there and it's it's this amazing venue but it's it's relatively small i mean i i remember the first gig i ever went there i can't remember who it was now but it was one of the kind of folk outfits and people were just sitting on the floor watching the support act because it was just really chilled out. It's a cool spot. Yeah, it does. It feels like a ballroom almost with like a small stage at the far end. It's, it's a very cosy venue. Yeah, imagine a classy wedding reception type venue. It feels a bit like okay. that with all of the all of the tables cleared out after dinner, and all <laughs> we've got left is like the the dance floor area. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's cool. I love it. All right, so we should talk a bit about the album itself. Tell us some tracks that were ones that pulled you in or ones that you think people should go and listen to in particular from this album. My favourite track on the album is a track called Hurricane. It's a track that starts off quite soft and romantic and builds into this painful um, chorus about how however much happens it isn't going to change the direction things are going in and the direction things are going in isn't what he wants okay so that one really hit me hard mm-hmm. there's a song earlier in the album called Stephen which is about a, a tragic death in Northern Ireland and that's one of the most kind of poignant heart-wrenching songs I've heard it's it's a really kind of wonderful tribute so there's a lot in here to like I think there's a lot of strong emotional moments which is really what i'm in it for yeah there's some really great stuff in here um i really liked it's not really the opening track but it's sort of the first one that really gets going making up for lost time that one grabbed me a little bit early on yeah and that's a one of the more uplifting ones of the set which you need to balance mm-hmm. out some of the more grim moments because that one leads straight into surfing guantanamo bay which is the absolute opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> right well you know you know us we love depressing music tinged with hype yes and that, that that that's what you'll get. That's what you'll get. I mean, I like anything that's yeah. kind of interesting lyrically with a decent amount of tempo to it. So uh, mm-hmm. my my taste is pr- pretty broad, I guess you would assume from the, the, the recommendations we talked about before. You know, I don't have a <laughs> specific genre that I focus on. It's just, you know, if it's lyrically interesting, I'll get involved. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that he really does have, and I'm not saying that he doesn't have other things going for him, but one thing that he really has going for him is he is lyrically very smart, he's verbose, there's a lot going on in there, and he's also someone where he's not mumbly in his delivery, so he's very clearly spoken, or spoken, sung, I guess, in terms of how he delivers his his vocals. And so you can really hear what he's singing about. It's not like, obviously, the strokes are a very different musical style, but the buried lyrics that you hear there, you can barely understand what anything that Julian Moss's name is saying. Yeah, which is very useful for a cover band. I'll, uh, I'll... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you, you alluded to it earlier as well, but it's not just the lyrics, it's the subject matter as well, where he just, he does seem to branch out all over the place and it's um you do get some bands who'll just focus on something like drinking and going out and he doesn't do that he's like i'm just going to be a you know i'm going to take a look at the world around me and and pick a subject and sing about it and i think it's hard to do that it's hard to write music that is engaging while you're talking about some quite serious big subjects i think and it's a real skill to be able to do that 
I think it's a really well balanced album because he kind of balances the emotionally painful ones with kind of jokey tracks like She's Not the One, which he describes mm-hmm. as the only ever love song to uh, Margaret Thatcher. And uh, <laughs> Call to Arms at the end is a really kind of powerful, uplifting song. So you end the album on a positive note, even if you've had some, um, you know, really poignant moments in the middle. Fair enough. All right. So, I mean, this this album is, I really enjoyed it in terms of, so people who know me know that I love End of the Road Festival and End of the Road Festival started as a US folk and Americana focused festival. And so I've heard a lot of stuff that sounds like David Ford, even though I don't know that he's ever played it, or at least I've never seen him if he has played it. But he would be absolutely not out of place on that bill. And I would absolutely, based on listening to this, go and see him if he was. So anyone who's a fan of that kind of stuff, you should be going having a listen. But outside this album, are there are there other albums that have pulled you in, specific tracks that you love elsewhere? So Charge is the follow-up to Songs of the Road, I think. And that is a similar spectrum of fun songs, poignant songs, painful songs, and then kind of optimistic songs. What's Not to Love is the peak of the kind of romantic ballad sort of songs on the on the track, and that's a really fun one. There's a song called The Ballad of Miss Lily, which is like a jokey sort of... difficult to describe, I guess. He, he talks about how when um, he was working with Easy World and in the earlier stages of his career, people were saying, you, you can't put such diverse set of tracks onto a single album it's jarring it doesn't <laughs> sit for people and he ignored that basically and said you know what i want is variety of good songs on my album and i'm going to construct it like this and i think it works i like the diversity on the album yeah i personally enjoy diversity of music on an album provided it sits together in a theme so BC Camp, like we talked about his latest album on one of our recent hidden tracks, and Neil's criticism was it's a bit all over the place musically, but from my personal perspective, the themes of the album, what he's talking about in the album, holds it all together, even though there's quite a diversity of music on there. Yeah, you, you don't want to go from kind of samba to waltz to jazz to rock in one album, but if your theme's okay, then you can do the kind of you can jump around with the with with your tempos and your, your kind of loudness of music, but yeah, there, there are bands that, that are guilty of trying to jump into that kind of oh reggae is popular at the moment, therefore let's try and do a reggae track, and it's like just stop it, be yourselves. Yeah, I'm a big fan of people doing stuff that actually appeals to their own sense of what's great about music, rather than necessarily following the crowd on that stuff. So you've already mentioned that you have seen both Easy World and David Ford in his solo guys live. If you had to pick to go and see one of those gigs again, what would you go and see? Um, I would go back to Scala, I think, the first time we saw him in Scala. That was the first time I saw him as a solo artist. And it was such. It, I was introducing him to my partner Suzanne as well, so that's always nice to be able to bring someone <laughs> else into that world. It's always a little scary, though, right? 
Oh, very, yeah. Because you spend the entire time sort of looking out of the side of your eyes to check that they're enjoying what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I knew she liked his music from just listening to it at home, but the whole into London for a gig thing was quite big. Yeah, it's it's tricky taking... For, <laughs> I had a, a gig once where we went to see Fiddler after work um, with a bunch of workmates. Um, Fiddler are a kind of American punk band, basically. They're incredible live. And we'd all turned up from work in suits with these guys not really knowing what to expect and two of them were really straight laced one, one of them was not but and he was really up for the gig and the music started and i'm not kidding in the first five seconds all of us were covered in beer because all the beer went up in the air from everyone a guy a guy to my left probably about a meter away from me got knocked out completely knocked out on the floor like an elbow hit him in the face and he just went down and the other guy who was the, the straight laced guy had a burger thrown at him and this was all in five seconds of this gig and i'm sitting there thinking oh my god i've just taken like these guys from work to this gig and it's carnage there's people like rushing the stage and all sorts and they were all looked at me and they were like this is incredible and like and, and the whole thing just went bananas <laughs> but yeah taking taking friends who to a gig who you don't know whether they'll like it or not it's uh yeah it sometimes can be a bit of a risk i weirdly enjoy gigs less if I really, really love a band or an artist and I've taken someone specifically because I think they'll enjoy it because I spend half the time worrying that they aren't enjoying it as much as I think they could and should be. I think I did that to my friend Alex when he took me to see Alter Bridge at the Hammersmith Apollo, which was a fantastic gig, so he needn't have worried, but <laughs> I could see that out the corner of his eyes. Is, is he enjoying this? He seems to be enjoying this. He's jumping around like a mad idiot. So. <laughs> I think if people are moving around and nodding their head and stuff, but I've got friends who will go to a gig and stand there and take it all in and cheer and applaud in between songs, but not necessarily be that emotive during the songs themselves. And then afterwards we'll be like, oh my God, that was amazing. And I'm like, really? Because I, I didn't feel like you were particularly enjoying this and I was bouncing all over the place. You're not just saying that. No, Jeff, it's just how <laughs> I enjoy things by standing still and applauding politely. I'm a very much a cricket watcher. Of, uh... <laughs> right. There's definitely a cricket watcher style of music in enthusiast that are out there and they're the hardest people to watch gigs with, <laughs> unless they're the one that suggested it, in which case who cares? Yeah, I'm very much a sing-along as much as I know the words to, to be honest. You're a singer in terms of your musical enthusiasm right i am these days yeah it's just it's come a long way from uh, the old recorder guitar clarinet saxophone days they've been under the bed for about 10 years but yeah it's been uh been singing recently because you are part of a covers band yes you kind of sort of briefly alluded to but we didn't actually talk about i, I try not to buy a trumpet yeah we, we we've got a, a group together uh, we call vinyl recall this week it's changed a couple of times but yeah, we'll awesome. uh, <laughs> as soon as places are back open that we can gig at, we'll be back looking for gigs again. What are your uh, top three floor fillers or to get people going? Uh, it depends on the venue. Um, so when we've gigged in Hartford, they like all the old punk stuff. So anything by The Clash, The Jam, that sort of stuff goes down really well. When you go further north, it tends to be the more modern stuff. So uh, like Daft Punk gets people out there. Awesome. Buzzcocks is always a winner, no matter where you go. <laughs> classic. Yeah, absolute classic. Fall in love, I assume. Must be. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in terms of, I guess, first Easy World and then David Ford, were there bands that you then went and explored having found them? So, yeah, the groups that I 
came across from David Ford were people like Ben Falls Five, The Walkman, and that sort of stuff. And it just led to lots of interesting esoteric albums, which um, which were nice. And, and it, was, it was the sort of music my sister was getting into as well. She's like three and a half years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So it was a nice little link between me and her as I was off to uni and she was um, in like sixth form. So it was good. It was good times. Nice. Easy World Wise, I already mentioned them, Jared Ford, Emily Grove were the two main ones that I've got linked into via him. Mm-hmm. In fact, I saw, I went to see Jared Dickinson at the Portland Arms, which is a little venue in Cambridge. Um, it was about like 30 chairs in a tiny room in the back. And we were sitting having dinner, it's like a pub with a venue out the back. So we were sitting having dinner watching Spurs playing in the uh, Europa League. And David Ford's a Spurs fan, and he just kind of popped his head out from this door to see what the score was. Noticed us sitting there, we went, oh, hello. Recognised me from some front rows back in the day. I didn't know he was going to be there. He's just, yeah, I'll just show up on someone else's tour because I've got a night off and do some backing work. Amazing. That's very cool. It was a nice treat. That's that's very cool. All right. Thank you for joining us. It's it's nice to have a, a member of the Long Snap pod come on and actually know what they're talking about from a music perspective. <laughs> Craig excluded because he clearly knows what he's talking about. So thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, and, and also thanks for introducing me. I, I thought I was kind of one of the those kind of geeks out there who kind of knew all of those hidden artists, but um his work is new to me so thank you for introducing me to him it's very cool so as always you can find us at i might be wrong uk in most places so twitter instagram facebook come and chat to us we've been having a bit of chat with a few folks pat's always uh pretty active on twitter with us ed one of one of my friends from back in university days is beginning to lead the charge on calling us out when we're wrong on Facebook and providing us with some other fascinating facts, including the fact that Madonna's Ray of Light is actually a cover, which I had no idea. Pat, where can people find you if they want to follow NFL-based things or if they want to go and watch your covers band? I'm at Rattius underscore Johansson on Twitter. There's also a Recall underscore Vinyl account on Twitter as well, so uh, you can find us both there. And we'll include links for those on the... uh on the episode for anyone who wants to go and find those i appreciate it so thanks thanks for joining us this week it's been fun i'm sure we'll have you back on soon i hope so cheers thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong